Greetings, everyone. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and I'm joined by my co-host, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. How are you? Hi, Marcus, and greetings to everybody. Wonderful. Yeah, Monsignor you. and I continue to practice social distancing. I'm in Ohio, and he's way up in upper Minnesota as cabin, but it's great to be able to join you, Monsignor, for this continuation of our study of, of uh, St. Irenaeus' wonderful book, Against Heresies. And we're slowly going through it, and uh, we've been looking forward to getting to book three. And um, there's so much in book three. What I'd like to do, everyone, is invite Monsignor to give an overview of the entire book, if you will, because we're going to go through it slowly. But uh, what's Irenaeus trying to do in this book, verses one and two? Yeah, finally we've gotten to book three, which is very exciting. It's um, uh, some people talk about book one and two like as if it it's like living Lent strictly, <laughs> and now we've now we're in Easter, Easter tide. Um, well, he, I, I wrote down five points that I was particularly struck with um, that that Saint Irenaeus makes in book three. Um, obviously, he's building on what we did in the first two books, um, but he's now, he's really, it's a, a, almost a fresh start because he's now giving us a positive um, um, perspective on what, what apostolic tradition is. Um, he's not so focused on simply refuting the arguments of the Gnostics. So... Here are my five points. Um, you know, before you get to those, Monsignor, yeah. it kind of reminds me of what happened to some of us at seminary. In other words, when we arrived, the first part of seminary was pointing out all the flaws we came with. And then right. the second part was to, uh, to show how all those flaws were flaws. And then after we've gotten all the dross out, let's fill it up with the good stuff. It's a beautiful way to put it. Book one was pointing out the flaws of the Gnostics. Book two was arguing and showing how they were groundless. And now book three, yeah. now we're going to get to the good stuff. That's a wonderful way to put it, I think. So book three begins with um, some very uh, striking uh, reflections on the nature of apostolic succession. And Marcus, we've already been talking about this. This is something that will engage us. Um, uh, scholars, um, both Protestant and Catholic, have debated for uh, many generations about these questions. Um, which which makes me feel unworthy to even yeah. utter a word. But uh, <laughs> oh, it's uh, and um, you know, I this is this book. This is the book that brought me to the Catholic Church. Book three. Um, chapter three, <laughs> section one. Uh oh, 
brought me to the Catholic Church. So I've been living with this for some time. So, so I need to so be that, careful. I need to be careful when I play a devil's advocate with book. No, no, you don't chapter have three, to because, section one. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. It's just that I might, I might be a little bit more combative than normal. <laughs> but so apostolic succession is how he begins the book, um, and then. It's very interesting and very important. The, the next section, um, he talks about the origin of the four Gospels and why those, why there has to be four Gospels. It's a fascinating argument he makes about that. There can only be four. And he, he's, it's fascinating to hear him set the four Gospels in uh, the context of their apostolic history. Um, Anyway, I think we'll have a lot of fun with, with that section. And, um, and then in the middle of the book, he um, wants us to know that there were other apostles too. And Paul is the most obvious one that comes to mind. And he insists that we are committed um, to the belief that there is a harmony in the apostolic tradition. So we, we are not permitted to set one apostle off against another. Um, there's a harmony in what they're teaching. And then the fourth uh, part of this book um, speaks to the doctrine of recapitulation, which is, you know, this is going to be the first extended reflection on the nature of um, Christ's saving work. And I think we'll have a wonderful time with that as well. Um, hmm. It's always left a deep impression on me. And um, my fifth point really follows on the fourth about recapitul recapitulation is here we are introduced to the Blessed Mother as the second Eve. Mm -hmm. And this is this becomes really now the, the first extended reflection on the nature of, um, of, of Mary, the mother of God, as... Um, as something that is integral to to the faith, to the Catholic faith, and to, well, we'll this will be an interesting question, but to apostolic tradition. So those are the four point, the five points that I, I drew out of this book. All right. Well, yeah. let me reiterate, and uh, it will be exciting to look at all five of those points. I And I confirm with you that the the section that you pointed out in chapter three, uh, section one, was also crucial to my own conversion to the Catholic Church in in so many ways. Only I didn't, I admittedly didn't see it in the context of the whole book because I was looking at the early Church Fathers in little snippets from Jurgen's collection, yeah. where you you, you yeah. see these, or or looking at it through the lens of. Newman's developmental ideas. He's choosing quotes, you know, to to fit into his idea. But that's why I'm excited that we're going through this this whole section. The so let's let's start at the beginning uh, and and really start very slow because even you know outside of the the five points you point out, there's some really small details which I. I noted here that I it just fascinates me too. Um, and the first thing that jumps out at me, Monsignor, is the very first 
phrase of chapter of book three, and that is, as thou, dearest friend, hast enjoined us to bring forward the Valentinus opinions. What, what that struck me is I didn't realize that the reason he was doing this was a bit like Luke writing his gospel and acts to a friend. Yes, yeah. The Theophilus. Yeah. You know, yeah. in other words, the, the, mode, the reason that Irenaeus saw the need to do this was because of his care for a friend who was getting sucked into all this craziness and really turns to Bishop and said, what do I do? And so you see the pastoral motive. Indeed. Yeah, it, it, I think that's a really good It's point. not a scholarly motive. It's not a big theological motive. Aaron S. was not trying to establish himself, uh, you know, as this he had, It was a pastoral motive. And... and and he's, he is, as everywhere in the early Christian world, he's, he is dealing with um, how these, these Gnostic teachers are tearing apart the fabric of the local congregations and stealing people away. And the underlying issue seems, one of them, is if you put yourself in his dearest friend's shoes, is how do I know? which of these voices to believe? How do I know? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me to a certain extent that Nereus begins by saying, well, uh, these are where they're wrong. These are the things they're wrong, book one. These are why they're wrong, book two. And so his friend is saying, okay, but how do I know what's right? Well put, yes. And that's what follows. And that's what book three is all about, yeah. Okay, so how do I know what's right? And that the rest of that first paragraph, he points out once again, as you've pointed out so well, that even from Simon, the father of all heretics. So he points out again that, that this place of Simon being the father of all these guys. And for those, you know, non-Catholic Christians that are only Bible-only folk, you're looking at it, well, Irenaeus is tying all of what he's saying and all that history back to the Scriptures, pointing out that in the Scriptures he was identifying this guy that was the foundation of all these heretics. Yeah. So then in, in uh, the second section of that first page, on page 203, we shall adduce from scriptures that nothing of what thou hadst required may be wanting on our part. And go down, for the charity which is in God, rich and ungrudgingly, bestows more than one requires of it. I love that quote there. Seems to me, Monsieur, that's a quote you could pull out and say, this is St. Irenaeus. The charity, for the charity which is in God, rich and ungrudgingly, bestows more than one requires of it. The, the, the riches. You remember that wonderful image that C.S. Lewis gave about heaven is so full of rooms and 
um, that comes to mind. So this friend we can't ever exhaust it. Can't ever exhaust it. I I noticed yeah. in the next three four pages, which I've got highlighted all over the place. There's just so much in here, over and over, as you pointed out with this very first issue, is we see the apostolic tradition, which he he summarizes on page two hundred four how this comes about. But I, I'm wondering from your background, before we jump into it, Monsignor, the importance of the idea of an apostolic tradition. Just the, the idea that there was an apostolic tradition and how important that is. Well, in terms of you know what the challenges that he was dealing with, um, you've got all of these itinerant teachers showing up claiming to have the secret truth. And so there has to be an identifiable way of um, that the, the people can find the truth. And later on, as we go into this a little bit more, he really, one of the points that I always like to um, bring forth when I'm teaching this book to uh, seminarians is that the apostolic tradition by nature is public. Um, it's accessible to everybody. And anyone with a fair mind can at, at least begin the journey um, to truth. So it's it's not something hidden. That's of course, Mark, as we were playing around earlier today about this um, question of uh, exotic interpretations and things like that that came you know, and I have, I confess to you and to my brothers and sisters that I have a terrible time with all of this private revelation stuff. Yeah. Um, so did because, John of the Cross. You know. <laughs> <laughs> revelation, God's revelation is public in, in the sense that it's given to all of his people. Even those that are unbelievers have access to it. Well, I, I have to be careful what I say, too, because I don't want to offend anybody, but the church always examines every reported private revelation to make sure it doesn't teach anything different or new than public revelation. If it does, then the church says no. But if it preaches, if what it says is what's in public revelation, not new, or contradictory, then okay. Well, yeah. with that being said, then we don't need private revelation because it's it's just a, yeah. a, a, yeah. a confirmation of what we already know in public revelation. So I, you could argue that the whole, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit to help make clearer in people's minds what is taught in the deposit of, of the truth. I remember... Uh, when wow. my wife and I visited, I think it's Barang in, in Belgium, one of the few affirmed Marian sites. And again, the church has said it's a site worthy of devotion, but it doesn't give the imprimatur to, you know, it, it's not public revelation, but it gives, it's one of the approved sites. And what, were the, what was the message of Barang? Uh, confess, convert, 
evangelize. I mean, that was basically the message. Yeah. Uh, so, so in that sense, he is saying in this section, here we have in the end of the second century, St. Irenaeus emphasizing that there is a touchstone for us to know what's true and hold on to this. And so your little church out there or your little pastor leading group people can know what's true. How do you know if you come across a weird scripture and you wonder, how do I understand that? How do you, how do you determine whether your interpretation is true? So as you mentioned earlier, it isn't private revelation or private interpretation. It's, it's a connection. And, and uh, I'd like to read this Monsignor, and then you reflect on it, because in the beginning and the bottom of 203, okay. um, I'm just going to jump into the middle of a sentence. On behalf of the only true and life-giving faith, which the church hath received from the apostles and dispenses to her sons. For indeed, the Lord of all gave to his apostles the power of the gospel, and by them we have known the truth, i.e. the teaching of the Son of God, to whom also the Lord said, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and him that sent me. For by no others have we known the method of our salvation than those by whom the gospel came to us, which was both in the first place preached to them and afterwards by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. I mean, there's a, 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 a definitive, essential early summary of the foundation for what's true in the passing on to it from Christ to the apostles to the scriptures and then to us. I know it's 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 really poetic. It's poetic, isn't it? Yeah. Too. It's so so beautifully put. But there is no way to the truth other than this way. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that, of course, this is the absolute bedrock foundation of what he means by apostolic tradition here. Yeah. Um. Marcus, by the way, I yes. Do you remember? I thought somewhere along the way I was so blessed by a book called "The Pillar and Bulwark of the Truth." Oh, you, have you ever heard of that one? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. I had. Thank you for mentioning that. That's my second novel that I wrote based on this. How did you choose that? Was it on, were you thinking of Irenaeus when you chose that? Not at, the at time? all. Not at all. Because it doesn't. In fact, that's a yeah. actually you, you've un, you've attached a little conundrum here, if you will, yeah. that might be something worth. Since you're the patristic scholar and I'm just the resident heretic, that you need to address because. You're no, that off. this one. Well, I'm no bestseller. You know, the only reason my book is out there is my family bought it. But uh, uh, it wasn't based on this at all. It was, although I think I quote Irenaeus in yeah. the novel is a is a it's a fictional account 
of the conversion of some Protestant ministers. And the second that comes from the first book was How Firm a Foundation. The second book was Pillar and Bulwark. And so you see in the second book how one person's journey affects others. And in this case, it was a congregational minister. But the reason Pillar and Bulwark for him was the question of what is the foundation and how do I know it's true? And this comes from 1 Timothy 3.15. The pillar and bulwark of the truth we believed was the scriptures. But Paul says, no, the pillar and bulwark of truth is the church. I, I was so glad you said that. So there's the conundrum. Because in this case, St. Irenaeus is, seems to be saying, if I, I summarize it at the bottom, that the Lord gave the power of the gospel and the truth and the method of our salvation to the apostles, who then preached it to their disciples, and afterwards, by the will of God, what they preached was handed down to their successors in the scriptures to become the ground and pillar of our faith. So it seems in this context that Irenaeus is emphasizing that the scriptures, which he's going to itemize, include the New Testament, not just the Old, but the New Testament, yeah. uh-huh. are the ground and pillar of our faith because they contain the preaching of the apostles, which they receive from our Lord. Um, but again, I just want to r- remind everybody that that um, the Gnostics also had, um, they also used scripture. Right. So there was an interpretive battle going on over some of these texts. And so... We're going to get to that. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. Yeah. So, so in other words, we got the Bible. And we believe that the Bible, old and new, together, is the inspired word of God. That the church actually, after Irenaeus, will define the canon once and for all. It's not going to happen for another 200 years until the Council of Rome and Carthage. And Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we see already in Irenaeus, he's affirming the books that will be the New Testament. He's quoted from them all. But he recognized them that they are Definitive, And so you have all these other people using this book, the collection, and they're taking it in different ways. So his friend is saying, basically, Irenaeus, how do I interpret this book then? The Bible. And so he gives the foundation for it here, right? Now, That's it. what you uh-huh. pose, we're going to get to. We're not quite there yet. How do you right. discern? Okay. We know what this is, and I'm holding. Here it is. There's the Holy Bible. It says Holy Bible on the, on the cover here. So we know that this is this, where it came from, right? And he says it's a ground and pillar of our faith, this. All right. For it never can be right to say that they preached before they had perfect knowledge, so some venture to say, boasting themselves to be correctors of the apostles. So, I mean, going on to the next day, some people are saying, well, I knew better than the apostles, right? Some of, the, some of those Gnostics are saying, I know better That's than right. the apostles. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Then he goes on, for after that, our Lord rose from the dead, 
and they were clad with the power of the of the Holy Ghost coming on them from on high, were filled with all things, and had perfect knowledge. They went out into the ends of the earth, bearing the good tidings of the blessings we have from God, and announcing to men heavenly peace. So once again, in that powerful statement, Monsignor, we see the fulfillment of our Lord's promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit that would guide the twelve, or the eleven, Uh into all truth and help them remember everything he taught so that it would come down in their preaching and end up in the scriptures. And the other thing, I made a note here, the other thing I took away from this section is, um, you know, when he says that the apostles had perfect knowledge, um, I, I took away from this, I, the note I made is that um, that Revelation is complete with the apostles. And, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of sometimes some churches today want to change things to suit the culture. And it means, it means um, basically saying we've, we've advanced on what the biblical writers put down. I mean, I think we're, we're, we can't go there, period. Um, what we believe is that revelation is complete. And that, again, that reminds me of, I don't know if I can find it quickly, but that reminds me of so many times Irenaeus was emphasizing to don't go where God hasn't revealed. Yes, yes. Don't 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 be at each other's throats. Don't argue over words. Don't. Well, and of course, Paul emphasized it in Ephesians four. You speak the truth with your brother. You speak the truth in love with your brother. Both love and truth have got to be there, and that became a problem later. But. You know, Monsignor, we were going to try and, and, and keep the show today to the half an hour and try and keep that as, and I think that's going to be fine, because what I'd like to do is yeah. the next very section, which is really cool, when he talks about the Gospels. Yeah. I don't want to jump into that yet. Okay. Because you know what I'm saying? I want to talk about the Gospels, their their formation. I want to quote from one of your favorite Anglican Scholars J. A. T. Robinson. <laughs> I met him once. <laughs> Did you really? Oh, yeah. But well, actually, his book on the redating of the New Testament, I thought was yeah. his other stuff was crazy, but I thought that was yeah quite convincing. So what we look at is, you know, the the formation of the Gospels. We'll look at that next time, and and even the order that you know, that Irenaeus gives there. Um, But maybe if we jump over to section two, just one statement as we go, just to end Uh with chapter two, verse section two, this is the first sentence. But when, on the other hand, we challenge them to that tradition, which is of the apostles, which is guarded by the successions of the presbyters and the churches, when they do that, they oppose tradition. 
And there's that apostolic succession that you were talking about. That's what passed on is protected. Marcus, one other thing I wanted to say too is when we were, we got two pages into this book today. That's phenomenal work. <laughs> but when you were, we were, we were talking about, uh, or you were mentioning that point about how um, we, you know, Irenaeus' teaching us that there are some things that we're not to be prying into. And I just wanted to pull back again that wonderful thing that you pointed out at the beginning of this podcast from um, page uh, 203. Yes. Um, where you quoted that, that about two-thirds of the way down, for charity, for the charity which is in God, rich and ungrudging, bestows more than one requires of it. Yeah. So, I mean, there again is a beautiful, that's a beautiful way to talk about how rich and uh, how rich the apostolic faith is yep. and we'll never exhaust it. So we don't have to go where we're not supposed to go. There's another text I, uh, in an earlier book when he talks about how these leaders kind of want to one-up themselves over the guy they learned it from. They're always trying. We got to be careful of that. That's been guilty of throughout the history of the church. Is a, 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 it's almost like what people have to do when they're in graduate school and they've got to write a dissertation, and they because yeah. they want to get no. It's got to be new. It's got to be novel. And that pressure has been there. And this is what he's saying. What God has given us is f is far more than we deserve. And uh, could you close us with a, a blessing? Monsignor, yes, then, we'll, then we'll pick right. up next week in this chapter. Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you, blessed Lord, for this wonderful gift of St. Irenaeus to us to help us to perceive um, in, a, in a deeper way the, the glorious mysteries of your life-giving faith and truth. We ask that you will help us as we um, live our lives, that they will always be ordered um, to the things that you set down in scriptures and pass on to the, through the apostles. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with us and remain with us always. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. And all of you joining us, thank you. Look forward to being with you again next week.